Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, along with meteorologist Luke Doris, here for podcast number 16 of Hurricane Season 2019. And, uh... Luke, things are winding down nicely. Yes, they are, thankfully. This uh, this will also be my last podcast it of the year. It will be. You're going to yes. miss the – we have one more next week with uh, Dr. Mike Brennan from the National Hurricane Center. Uh, but uh, Luke is going to be on a little holiday. So. It'll be in New York. So <laughs> good for you. All right, today we're going to talk with Rob Moyeda, who is the Warning Coordination Meteorologist at the National Hurricane Center office here in Miami. Uh, we're going to ask him uh, what the heck a Warning Coordination Meteorologist does. <laughs> but I know Rob is a really busy guy. And we also want to talk about the weather information you get on your favorite weather apps and about The thing that is part of virtually every weather forecast these days, the probability of precipitation, that percentage uh, chance of rain that you see all the time. So we're going to talk about both those subjects uh, with Rob. And, uh, for example, if there's a 40 percent chance of rain, uh, is it probably going to rain in most places? Mm, Well, it kind of warps your mind a little bit to think about it, so we'll talk about that. We're recording this on Wednesday, October 23rd, 2019. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune into Local 10 in South Florida or check the Max Tracker app or the Local 10 weather app for current information. Today's podcast is brought to you by the folks at the Dade County Federal Credit Union, where they care about you and your family. Stay safe and worry-free this hurricane season and prepare your home. If you need funds to help you get started, then apply for a DCFCU signature loan today and get up to $20,000 with rates as low as 6.9% at Dade County Federal Credit Union. Okay, in the tropics uh, last week, we had Nestor, Mm -hmm. which was interesting. I'm going to be very interested to talk to Mike Brennan next week about Nestor and um, that was for, for a split second tropical, so it got the name Tropical Storm Nestor. And then very briefly after that, it became kind kind of untropical, and it's just a difficult uh, issue in trying to label these things correctly. So you, this time of year, you get these fronts that start kicking southward, and when you have a—they can help spin up sometimes, too, a tropical system, uh, but when they merge into one— and they become these weird hybrid systems. It's just tough for them to maintain their tropical status for very long because they're going to wrap that cooler air around as they merge with the fronts, and then they, then they become these hybrid systems rather quickly. Is that what happened here? That's what happened, yeah. So the thing was untropical almost a minute after it was tropical uh-huh. because exactly like you said, in that case, the front was across the northern Gulf, and they and there was an upper-level low pressure system and they all got kind of co-located with each other pretty quickly in the northern gulf so uh the problem is is caused by the fact that we always have going back to the beginning of of naming these things we name them after their meteorological category we don't name them after the effects they have so you know if we named anything that made tropical storm force winds uh, that came out of the tropics, a tropical storm, for example, and didn't worry about. And then in the discussion part, talked about, okay, technically this is involved with the front. It's technically fits in the subtropical category, but the name had to do with the effects as opposed to the the meteorological category. You know, that could change it, but it, that's a whole another can of worms. Sure. So anyway, it's an interesting uh, thing to talk about. And now we have almost a repeat going on, right? We have this 
a kind of moisture surge thing coming over the Yucatan Peninsula. It's going to get into the southern Gulf of Mexico. There's a front approaching this time from the west, and there's a little window of opportunity out ahead of the front for a tropical depression or something or other to form. Now, this front is stronger, and it doesn't look like yet the, the opportunity will be as long, but it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is still just a split second. That yeah. one coming in out of Texas next week, it looks so good. Yeah. And <laughs> you see these strong fronts not far away from us, and uh, you start to get excited here locally for some maybe fall weather, but we, we won't get that. But we'll see what it does with the tropics. Probably not much. Yeah, I don't, think, uh, I don't think there'll be a front this month. It doesn't look like it. Doesn't it doesn't look like it. It's not, not going to be now. into November. Um, maybe, and we don't really don't see a front. A real front in sight. Uh, the models every once in a while have pushed one through, and then as it got closer, backed off, backed off, backed off, which is a traditional thing, by yeah. the way. I mean, and, and Rob, uh, doing local weather here for a long time, knows this very well. We'll talk to Rob we'll get about it in just a moment. But, but uh, models have, as long as I've been forecasting the weather in South Florida, have oversold the idea of cold fronts coming in October. They tease you. The, yeah, <laughs> it's really annoying, yes. And it's really hot, too. I mean, it's amazingly hot here the last couple of days. All right, another uh, quick thing that I want to follow up on, and that's the podcast at the beginning of the month about the 1888 hurricane. If you didn't hear that one, uh, it turns out the official record shows a strong hurricane, at least 125-mile-an-hour Category 3, hitting what is today uh, Miami Beach on uh, August 16th, 1888. And there's a report in there about a 14-foot storm surge. So that would have been, you know, a big-time hurricane. Well, I got to think about it, uh, thinking about it, and, you know, it would have been a big enough event, you would have think, that I should have heard about it, or it would have left more of a mark. And in Miami Pioneer history, you would have thought that people would have talked about it. And, and I just I never heard of it until I until, you know, uh, saw it in the hurricane record. Well, now I've got the records from 1988. Uh, from all up and down the coast, from the National Archives outside of Atlanta, sent them to me. And also I got some just today from Washington. And it turns out that people indeed along the coast recorded the storm from today's Miami Beach all the way up to central Florida. They didn't have any instruments to measure, uh, but they did record the direction of the wind at least three times a day. And they noted in words how strong it was. So we have a pretty good idea what happened. My conclusion from looking at that data is that landfall was somewhere between Fort Lauderdale and Delray Beach as a strong tropical storm or a low-end hurricane. Uh, it can't have been too strong because people were right on the beach and nobody reported storm surge, so it can only have been so strong. And uh, after the storm went by, life went on and they entertained and they had visitors and, and so forth, so there wasn't any significant damage done. Well, I sent the new data over to the National Hurricane Center for their analysis. They have a team of experts, Dr. Chris Lancy, Dr. Jack Bevan, uh, Andrew Hagen, and other folks there that look at these things, and uh, we'll see what they say. They have a long list of, of historic storms to look at. So anyway, it's kind of cool. Yeah, it seems pretty conclusive from all the data that you've uh, been able to gather. Yeah, it's but, conclusive um, that it wasn't a big, strong hurricane hitting Miami Beach, I think. Yeah. You know, exactly what they analyzed. Uh, uh, remains to be seen. I'm going to be real interested in that. And the thing that got me over the hump of getting this data was because we talked about it on the podcast. <laughs> because a podcast listener in uh, Boynton Beach, uh, who is a student of history there, put me on the path to getting that data from the National Archive outside of Atlanta. So 
So anyway, it was uh, thanks to the good listeners of the Brian Norcross <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yes, and uh, thank you very much. You were a big help. All right, let's bring in uh, Rob Moyetta from the local National Weather Service office here in Miami, which of course is co-located with the National Hurricane Center on the FIU campus. You see their building along the Turnpike when you're driving uh, just south of Southwest Eighth Street. Look over to your right if you're heading north, and you'll see all those satellite uh, dishes there where they get their their uh, satellite images and other data and so forth. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Brian. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, you're very, very welcome. So uh, tell us about what a, a warning coordination meteorologist at the National Weather Service does. Yeah, the, sure. The, uh, the name, though, the title is a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, yes, uh, I guess you know a big part of my job does involve uh, warnings, but really primarily how... Uh, how warnings are received uh, by the public and and really how they're used. Uh, for example, uh, you know, a big part of my job is to uh, basically act as a liaison uh, between the National Weather Service and our core partners. The core partners are you know, the, the media, of course, also emergency managers. They're emergency managers at the uh, city, county, state level. So we you know we we work closely with them really all throughout the year, uh, you know, in order for, you know, in order for us to better understand, uh, you know, uh, specific weather-related needs that they have regarding planning. For example, uh, it could be like, for example, hurricane evacuation zones are something, uh, it's something that's uh, typically planned uh, during the off-season. We also go over, uh, you know, the different types of uh, information that we put out uh, as part of our package of, of, of tropical weather information, especially for the local air area for South Florida. Uh, so we work closely with, the, you know, we, with our emergency manager and media partners on that. We also uh, have a pretty extensive uh, community outreach program, which I manage, and that, uh, that involves giving talks and presentations to a wide variety of people across the community, uh, anywhere from schools, uh, to uh, private businesses, to government agencies at all levels here in, in, in South Florida. So, yeah, it's a it's it's a job that certainly requires a lot of interaction uh, out and you know, you know being outside the office a lot. And it's you know, personally something that I really enjoy. Just you know, also you know, really getting to understand how people use weather information and, and what things they need in order you know what type of weather information they need uh, in order to you know to 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 go about well not just go about their daily business but especially during high impact weather events like hurricanes so that they can make you know good decisions you know to protect themselves or families and and the people that they represent yeah i know this is a, a trend in the national weather service and it's a good trend that uh, the entire national weather service is doing a lot more outreach and impact-based uh, planning and, and so forth. You had a uh, news conference yesterday uh, talking about the winter season to come for South Florida. Now, Luke and I were just talking about the fact that we haven't really had a real cold front here this year, but I'm sure that we will have a winter season eventually uh, here. Give us the bottom line on on what you uh, talked about yesterday. Yeah, well, the main thing with this coming dry season uh, is that there's no, we have no strong large-scale uh, signal. For, you know, one of the key things that we uh, that we base the outlook on is the presence of either El Nino, La Nina, or a neutral pattern like we are now. So when we have the you know a, a more defined pattern, for example, like an El Nino pattern, or the opposite, which is La Nina, uh, the 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 influence of those 
that those uh, phases have on South Florida weather is a bit more, it's a little bit more predictable, you know, in a, in a general sense. For example, uh, in El Nino years, uh, winters tend to be a little bit cooler and wetter than normal. And in La Nina years, especially the stronger the, those events are, for La Nina, for example, we tend to have warmer, drier winters. Uh, this year, we are, or so far, late this year, we're in a neutral pattern. So neither El Nino or La Nina, which means that we really, there really, there's no well-defined large-scale global scale system, you know, that that can give us a really strong indication of you know, whether we're going to be warmer or cooler than normal, or drier or wetter. So we have to rely on other, uh, there's other factors involved, uh, which you know, a lot of them have a, probably, I would say, a lower. A, uh, a, a lower level of predictability, uh, especially a lot of these intra-seasonal uh, cycles, uh, such as the, the North Atlantic Oscillation, the, uh, the Pacific North American uh, one, you know, the, the, the Madden Junior Oscillation, all those play roles, but they're, they're more on a sub-seasonal scale, maybe on, on the order of weeks or maybe a month. Yeah, and therefore not forecastable, right, in any kind of long-term well, sense. Yeah, yeah, right. They're not forecastable. Maybe maybe, maybe once you get within two weeks, they're, 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 you can try to pin them down a little bit better. So really, all in all, so, for example, for temperatures, I know trends, has been a fairly good signal the last several years. Uh, and now trends meaning what's occurred over the last several years. Uh, and really, we, we haven't, and you were talking about you know, the lack of cold fronts here <laughs> so far this, this life season. Well, we, 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 haven't, we haven't had a below normal or, or a cooler than normal winter since, two, since 2010, 2011. So it's eight winters in a row that have been warmer than normal. So that trend alone would suggest, okay, you know, assuming, of course, we have to make assumptions that, that those trends are part of a, you know, that those trends will continue then, that we'll have warmer than normal uh, temperatures uh, this winter. Also, some of the uh, statistical and dynamical models are showing that as well. Uh, so, so, you know, we at least have a moderate, you could say a moderate, low to moderate level of confidence on the uh, temperature outlook being, you know, temperatures being warmer than normal. Now, precipitation's a lot trickier. Because that that really does depend more on having a a, a well defined uh, uh, ENSO pattern, whether it's El Nino or La Nina. So in a neutral pattern, where you know these uh, the precipitation signals are, are probably even harder to pin down. Uh, so really, our, our it, the official Climate Prediction Center outlook is calling for equal chances. In other words, they're not leaning one way or the other. Uh, we're we're indicating that probably or at least a chance of being somewhere near the norm, near normal, but acknowledging that, especially if we trend a little bit warmer, you know, if, if the ENSO pattern does tend or tilt a little bit towards El Nino, which it could, uh, we, have, we there, there's a chance. I wouldn't say it's not a it's not a really high chance, but a chance that we could end up being a little bit wetter, especially during the second half of the dry season. But you know, I'm, I'm using a lot of uncertainty here, <laughs> where I'm, I'm, I'm conveying a lot of uncertainty in this in this because. Definitely more than the normal, you know, level of uncertainty as far as this dry season outlook is concerned. Rob, one of our topics for today has to do with weather apps and the modern trend uh, for predicting the weather. It, it seems to be going to this like very granular and very hyper local basis. Like just about any app will tell you what the weather will be every hour this afternoon and ten afternoons down the line. Sometimes at your specific location, when we know. 
that the way thunderstorms move and form in the afternoon, it it's, has a randomness to it. Do you think that apps and hourly forecasts in general overpromise, and does that hurt the credibility of forecasts in general? Uh, well, I I do think that yeah, there I mean, there is always that danger of of you know being your forecast that attempts to be too precise is you know it's not going to really represent uh, the conditions accurately. Uh, but you know, I will say this though, you know, as as you know, as an agency, we are you know, we are gearing more toward uh, or focusing more on shorter term details in weather forecasting. So you know, and 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 the um, the models we use, the tools that we use for short range, you know, weather forecasting, have gotten a lot better over the even just in the last few years. Uh, you know, sometimes you know, there are days that I'm like, wow, that I'm. I'm frankly amazed at how how good some of the short range models can be. Other days they can be way off. I mean, it's you know, it, it's uh, you know, it, I've seen I've seen examples on both ends. So yes, it's the trick is you know is is how to what level of detail you use that information. You know, I, I think that's something that we're still not quite there yet. Really, I don't think anyone's really quite there yet. You know, to be able to give a uh, a highly accurate, dependable one-hour forecast, especially when it comes to things like, like, like rainfall. You know, as we as you mentioned, and, and especially in the summer months here in South Florida, our rainfall patterns can be very random. Uh, so predicting that on an hourly basis is really, it, it, I mean, it, there, it, it's almost futile <laughs> to be able to be able to do that. So I think really a better approach is, you know, instead of focusing on the hourly or you know, hour to hour, minute to minute, is really kind of take into account maybe different times of the day. It could be early afternoon or mid-afternoon or late afternoon. There at least, you know, we, in, we there's at least you know, a better uh, sense of what the pattern would be instead of trying to pinpoint a specific location at a specific time and try to forecast where these individual you know, cells are going are to form and move and how they may interact with other cells and other storms you know, around it. So I think what you're saying is, the idea that would work better, which I agree with, by the way, is to kind of make the best statement you can about the forecastability of a situation. Because when it's and when it's a hot South Florida afternoon, you have a good chance that storms are going to form inland, or they're going to do this, or they're going to do that in a general sense. But right. in, and you can you know be reasonably accurate about that, um, at least as, as accurate as modern science allows. But you. But modern science just does not allow this hour-by-hour hour kind of forecast. Let's talk about um, uh, locations. The idea that apps, for example, forecast for a particular location. But this is kind of a little bit complicated, I think, the, because the whole question of of where the forecast before uh, is for uh, to me is an interesting one. So if if I go on the National Weather uh, Service website, your website there. And I asked for a forecast for, say, Hollywood. Is that a forecast for Hollywood in general, for the Hollywood area, or is it for Eastern Broward County, the Eastern Broward County forecast zone, the coastal forecast zone east of the Turnpike? Yeah, if you go to to our website, weather.gov, and you either type a city or state at the top left bar, or you go to the map and actually click on a location. That the forecast that you'll see come up will will be the forecast for a two and a half kilometer or two and a half square kilometer grid right where you click. So it so it actually is a a, a very localized forecast. Uh, now you also have the option of 
there's somewhere on the page you have the option of seeing the, the zone forecast that that area sits in. For example, for Hollywood, it would be uh, coastal Broward County. You have the option of seeing that also. But what will come up initially will be the where basically where you clicked on the map or what city you indicated in the, in the top bar at the left, and it will basically be a two-and-a-half-square-kilometer grid uh, around that point. You know, on TV, we cover all of South Florida, uh, and this is kind of, I think, a follow-up from what we just talked about, but although we cover all of South Florida, we often talk maybe about rain being a little bit more likely in Broward or Dade or Inland or whatever, but in the end, we only make one forecast uh, for TV, for WPLG. But in theory, the forecast for Hollywood uh, on the National Weather Service website might be different from the forecast for Pembroke Pines, right? I mean, if the turnpike is your dividing line? Well, I mean, well, when it comes to the zones, you know, to the, you know, to the, I guess, you know, the, the zones that we've had for many years, yes, the, the zones have a clear demarcation. For example, the coastal uh, Broward zone, and same thing applies to, to some extent to Miami-Dade County, I-95 is the dividing line. So basically, east of I-95 is the coastal zone. Then between I-95 and the Fograph Expressway is the metro Broward zone. So again, we're taking Broward County as an example here. So, so yeah, so so those forecasts will be a bit more general. But but when we prepare, when we do our forecasts, we do them digitally. So in other words, all the information that's in our forecast, the chances of rain, temperatures, wind, humidity, etc., it's it's done in using those two and a half square kilometer points that we basically. You know, so 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 when we forecast this for the entire South Florida area. All, you know, what, what you're seeing are basically the forecast for all those individual two and a half square kilometer grids or, or boxes. And this is the NDFD, right? It's called the yeah, National exactly. Forecast Data. Yeah, the National Digital Forecast Database. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> NDFD. Yes, that's so. You right. put the you put the numbers in the NDFD database, and then when you go on the website, it pulls out the ones for the uh, two and a half kilometer square near you. That is correct. Yes. All right, good. All right, so that gets us to this idea of of pops or probability of precipitation. The rain percentage is part of all the weather forecasts. So there's an official definition, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But uh, just as a general statement, do you think that people understand the number, the you know the percentage of precipitation number, understand what it means in an official sense? Like for example, I was talking with a guy a couple of days ago. And he said, well, a 40% chance of rain means it's definitely going to rain. I mean, he was absolutely certain in his mind that 40% meant absolutely definitely. What's your take on how people understand POPs? Not the, not the official definition, but how they understand the, those percentages uh, in the weather forecast. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, think, I think a lot of people... Do understand? I think I think what what a lot of people do is they you know they, you know they have a memory or at least some some general sense of you know the past. For example, they they may remember okay you know there's a forty percent chance of rain and you know maybe when when they notice a lot of those days with forty percent chance of rain they may they, they may notice that it does rain on a lot of those days or at least it rains somewhere nearby. Uh, I know people that work outside that basically you know they're whether they're roofers or. Or, or landscapers, they they're they're well attuned to the to that. Especially, in fact, I know um, for a long time we used to have a person he's caught here almost every day during the summer. He he, he was a roofer and he, he was he seemed to be pretty pretty well attuned to 
to the pops, you know, to and and and, and how to kind of use that. So I think I think people in general, I think they they have a sense or they kind of understand now how we how we come up with those or or, or what we're trying to convey. You know, that's that's another story. I'm not sure if a lot of people understand uh, exactly how we come up with the numbers or exactly what it is that we're trying to convey when we say, for example, a 40% chance of rain, or how we come up with that value, really. Well, in meteorology school, we were taught that it was basically confidence times coverage would equal your pop. So let's do let's do some examples. So as I understand it anyway, correct me if I'm wrong, but a 40% chance of rain could mean either a forecast uh, for 100% chance or 100% chance of rain over 40% of the area. So rain will develop but only 40% of the area will see that rain. Or, conversely, you could have a 40% chance that rain develops. But if it does develop, everybody gets it uh, in your forecast area or any combination in between where the odds of how likely it is to rain and how much of the area will cover multiply out to equal 40. Is that it? Yeah, well, that's the traditional way of doing it. Yes, in fact, when I, when I started in the weather service, that was pretty much you know, what we did you know, before digital forecasting um, came along. Um, that's kind of what we did, at least you know, in our heads. But we know we also had um, computer model or, or numerical model guidance or information um, that's mainly statistically based um, that, that would you know, give us the pops and then we would use that in our forecast. Uh, I would say, however, with with the with the models being much more skilled, and the digital information that we get from the models, uh, we you know we we can actually you know for especially when we're forecasting for points. See, when you're forecasting for a point, then the the area uh, analogy doesn't quite fit because. You know, in other words, yes. If we're let's say if we're doing a forecast for let's say all of Miami-Dade and all Broward counties, so we take the two counties, combine them, okay, and come up with one forecast that includes for that entire region, then we could use that the, that method where you know let's say okay, yes, we know it's going to rain somewhere, but it's only going to cover 40% of the area, so we're just going to assign a 40% chance. However, we do know that there there, there are patterns. You know, e- even in our daily summertime precipitation, most days there are there are, there are fairly well defined patterns. So one part of the area might have a lower chance of rain than another area. In fact, that's usually the case. So I think we you know we, the models have gotten better, and our understanding of local weather patterns I think has gotten better as well, where we can actually differentiate at least on, on not every day, but on, on many days we can differentiate those areas that maybe have a little bit of a lower rain chance than. Then, you know, for example, in I just give you one example in a in a typical east wind pattern in the summer, uh, we may have uh, you know we'll, we'll have a, a increased chance of rain in the morning hours near the coast, and then as we transition to the afternoon hours, uh, the the uh, thunderstorms tend to form farther inland as the sea breeze pushes you know towards the interior of the peninsula. So we could have a lower rain chance along the beaches and have a higher rain chance. Um, you know, 10, 15 miles inland. So it's 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 fairly comp- it's it is fairly complicated. You know, but you know, I think that the you know the models you know are becoming more sophisticated, especially the higher resolution, shorter range models that focus more on local areas. They can sometimes or many times pick up on these weather uh, on these patterns fairly well. Oh, so I'm really up to this. So no, so yeah, just 
finish my point real quick. So, so it's really up to the meteorologist to take that information and, and then you know be able to smartly you know come up with with a good pattern of rain chances that we think is representative. You were talking about the models and some of the high risk stuff. I marvel at what the H triple R is capable of doing. Sometimes that model is just remarkable. Except but, when it's not. Except when it's not, and there are times, <laughs> yeah. and there are times, exactly. where, it, you know, exactly. it, it will lure you in, and you'll yeah. think, "Ooh, I see what the models, the mo- H triple R is saying this." And there are times where you want to hang your hat on it, and then it will burn you, and you mm-hmm. it goes it goes the other way. But yeah, through all this, you can see how people sometimes, you know, they attribute because it, it gets complex. You know, what the actual statistical or the the precise meaning of pops are so they kind of assign their own meaning of what what the numbers actually mean to them do you think right. that we use it because we can't think of any other way to boil it down to how rainy it will be <laughs> yeah i mean it's i mean I, I i think it still makes sense i mean to, to use to use probabilities uh for rain you know it, i think it's you know it's important that that Pete, that we help people understand exactly what we're telling them so really so i mean i don't i don't mean to sound uh you know uh flippant when i say this to people you know people ask me so what is you know so when you guys forecast 40 percent, what does that mean and i tell them well it means that you have a 40 percent chance that it's going to rain where you are that's that's exactly what i tell them in other words it's a four in ten chance that that you will have rain somewhere where you are where that you know that that that, that area where that you know that, that the forty percent chance is, is, is valid for. Uh, so if they move around, you know, within that area, they could go from an area where there's forty percent chance to an area where there's maybe a twenty or a thirty or even a, or, or a higher chance of rain. So, so th- now how we get to that number, right? Which is what we talked about earlier. How we get to that forty percent? That's that's the tricky part. But you know, I try to you know really in the end, in the end, it it is a forty percent chance of rain. It's a four in ten chance. Yeah, this is really a a tough one because there's not an obvious better way to do it. And these days, of course, the forecast that most people get initially, at the very least, is uh, an icon, a percentage, and a temperature or two. (laughs) And that's it, right? And so out of that icon and that percentage, they're supposed to come up with a weather forecast. But when you really think about this uh, and these percentages and it really comes into play when you're talking about you know the the wind percentages and hurricanes right when we talk about how what the percentage of the uh, wind is going to be it's actually there's some kind of threshold that's intrinsic to it right that's it's you know people have a mental threshold of what the percentage needs to be for them to take an umbrella and it might be a different threshold because some people may be more tolerant of getting wet uh you know somebody that just went to the beauty parlor is going to be a lot less tolerant than than the average teenage kid who wouldn't be seen caught dead with an umbrella so uh the the numbers you know might vary among people but but people i think intrinsically have a threshold built in uh just like uh, communities might have a threshold built in when a hurricane uh strike probability or wind probability is above 20% that might mean they have to do something. Can you imagine somehow, uh, you know, once it gets, once the threshold gets, or gets, uh, not the threshold, but once the percentage gets to a high number, that, you know, you just kind of peg the needle then and you say, uh, you know, unequivocally rain when, you know, it gets to 70% or doing some kind of thing besides trying to fine tune it down to the closest 10% uh, when it's on the margins. Yeah, uh, 
technically the National Weather Service, when we exceed, when we have a higher than 80% chance of rain, we basically are categorical with it. In other words, we say in the forecast, rain or widespread rain. In other words, we don't we don't qualify it by saying likely or possible or, or scattered. You know, so so 80% is that is basically yeah, 80% is that threshold. Anything 80% or lower, we or we attach a conditional term such as likely or chance of or scattered. So yeah, but you is, still put the 80% out, right? Yes, that is correct. All right, all right, interesting. Okay, on a different subject, this year we had exceptionally warm temperatures at MIA. What we're, we're on track for the record warmest October. We just had the record warmest September. It's, just, it's been remarkable in previous months this year, too. And we've had record high king tides. Do computer models, uh, do they capture these extreme events, or do the forecasters at your office have to compensate because you can see that the values are pretty extreme? You know, it's... It it depends on the weather pattern, but I would say overall, uh, if you know, if it's a uh, if it's a day where we're, where there's a, at least you know where the pattern uh, suggests that we could have record highs, uh, for example, then yeah, sometimes the models uh, can have a hard time catching that. Or I would say the statistical models will have a harder time. Why? Because while they're based on statistics, which you know are based on, for example, let's say it could be a 20-year record of temperatures. So if you're you know, if you have a potential extreme event for that day, then the statistics may, you know, they, the statistics are going to try to trend at least a little bit closer to what's more typical. Now, the raw computer information could, you know, computer model information could catch or or, or sometimes um, give you hints that, that, that a more extreme event could occur. For example, temperatures could, could meet or exceed record levels. Uh, so sometimes in those situations, instead of going, you know, more statistically based, you might want to trend more towards what some of the raw computer model information is showing. So it's, it's really recognizing the pattern and knowing which information, which computer model guidance fits your, your understanding of that weather pattern on that day. Yeah, that's why we still have human forecasters making these uh, exactly. choices, I guess. So what do you see coming uh, in the future for the local National Weather Service office here in Miami and just local no- National Weather Service offices in general? Well, I think uh, we're, we're, we're going to see uh, where we, we've already started, uh, really a trend towards uh, more localized uh, weather forecasting. You know, I think especially like within maybe the first, you know, 36, 48 hours of the forecast period. I mean, I mean, there may be, you know, I mean, in fact, even we were talking earlier about, about hourly, you know, hourly depictions of temperature and rain chances. We already produce, um, you know, hourly temperatures and hourly rain chances. Now, how we actually depict that on our forecast, you know, is, you know, is, is obviously, you know, we, we, don't, we don't do hour by hour breakdowns in the, in the actual, you know, forecast, although there is a table where you, where you can see the hourly breakdowns. But when we give the forecast that says 40% chance of rain, that's basically the highest rain chance for a basically for a three-hour period um, in which those hourly uh, pre- precipitation um, chances uh, make up. So, uh, so I think there's, you know, there's going to be a, a greater emphasis on shorter-range forecasting, especially when it comes to, to decision support, or in other words, you know, information you know, that, that people can use to make decisions, so it'll be more, really more impact-based. You mean, should uh, I go now or should I wait uh, an hour yeah. or two, kind of that kind of thing? Yeah. 
Um, yes, uh, it, it could be that, or it could be, you know, uh, for example, uh, you know, on a on a given day, uh, let's say if we have a, a 50% chance of thunderstorms develop, you know, sometime later that day or later in the afternoon, for example, then in the morning people can make plans, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, you know, I mean, people do that now, but I think, you know, they're, you know, with, with, the, with the improvement in the short-range forecasting, you know, that's really, so in other words, it's not just, yes, it, we're, we're always going to have temperature and rain chance, rain, temperatures and rain chances in our forecast, but we're also going to have more impact-based information, such as what is the threat of lightning, for example? What is what is the, the, the threat of uh, strong wind gusts on a particular day? Or flooding, for example, from heavy rainfall? Uh, so all the, so it's really becoming more impact-based, not just solely the temperature, precipitation, wind values, but converting those into impacts that people can then use in order to make you know to make good decisions, or for a city, you know, for emergency managers to make to make good plans. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting to see how you communicate that without kind yeah. of bogging people down in too much information or being right. so precise that, you know, the forecast ends up being uh, uh, on balance, not as accurate because some slice of it that people might be hanging their, their hat on uh, turns out to be, you know, overly precise. It's going to be difficult. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the communication aspect is really important as well. You know, it's not just you know that that it's not that it's not just that that information is, is out there, but how we communicate it is so important. Exactly. All right, Rob Moyeta from the National Weather Service office uh, here in Miami. Thanks so much, and right, uh, I'm you, sure we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks, Rob. All right, thank you. Take care. Right, take care. All right, you know, there's another really interesting and I think quirky thing that most people don't think about about um, percentages. So if you have a 40% chance of rain this afternoon, right? Now, what does that mean on an hour-by-hour basis? Because if, if, let's just say, that the, the odds of rain were spread evenly over the afternoon, right? Mm-hmm. And let's just say it's, you know, there's a line of, of storms coming through. All right, obviously, there's a lot of ifs here. But there's a line of storms coming through, so it's going to, if it rains, it's going to kind of rain once and move through. Yep. Right. OK. And there's a 40 percent chance that that's going to happen, we say. So this is one of those 40 percent chances going to happen 100 percent of the places. Gotcha. Right. But the 100 percent of the place could be downtown Miami or wh- whatever. OK. Now you do the stats and you figure out, OK, if that 40 percent is spread out over six hours from noon till 6 p.m., turns out that that's less than 10 percent chance per hour. Well, it's not going to rain then, Brian. <laughs> so how do you communicate that, right? Yeah. So the the people that do the apps don't actually do it that way because if you ended up putting a 10% chance at noon, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, uh, even though statistically that would add up to more than 40% at some time in the afternoon, it wouldn't convey the same idea, sure. right? So um, statistics can suck in that regard because – you have to uh, you have to kind of mess with the actual statistics to come up with with uh, you know something that communicates, which gets back to the, exactly what you were asking Rob about, which is what do the percentages mean to people versus what do they statistically mean? Yeah, and that's the big thing with you know, communicating it, and w- that's that's where it gets tough. And we have a debate quite often in the weather office of. Pops 
you know, we, uh, let me back up. Talking about the seven-day forecast. Mm-hmm. So the seven-day forecast is the big. That's the that's the biggest graphic that we can show. And some television stations show percentages of rain chances on the seven-day forecast. Other stations opt not to show those, and they'll put a text uh, up that says, you know, afternoon showers, scattered showers, whatever you you may have. So the the debate is, and it's kind of split of which is the better option. And I'm in the pops camp. I like the percentage chances. And for a couple reasons. One is, I think that there's a lot more information that can be gathered from that than than the words. Um, And I also think that if you have a glance at a graphic and you don't have all that much time to absorb it, the fewer words and the less information you can get on to get your point across, the better. And you, you... put this in words for me, Brian, that I kind of already had in my head, but I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't put the words together. Rain index is really what we should be calling POPs because it's not a technical uh, description. When I'm putting together my forecast, I'm not doing a 10% chance at 1, 10% chance at 2, 10% chance at 3 to come up with a 40% chance for the afternoon. What I'm doing is I'm looking at the afternoon or the day as a whole, and I'm looking at, one, what's the chances that we get rain? How widespread is the rain going to be? Uh, how big's the impact? Is it going to be really heavy stuff? And how long is it going to last? All this comes together to give me a subjective, not a scientific, a subjective idea of what I think conveys the chance that your day is impacted by rain. How much of it? How yeah, big the, of it? The sense of raininess. The sense of raininess, the rain index. Right. So, And I think that gets uh, understood because like your guy that said 40% chance means it's definitely going to rain. I thought about that. And 20% to most people says, not going to rain, do whatever you want, you're good. 30% means, well, you could see some showers, but they're going to come and go. 40%, now you're beyond the others. 50%, oh, it's not 50-50 that you see rain. That's not how it's interpreted, I don't think, from my discussions with people. 50% means it's going to be a pretty rainy day. And those are, at least in this market, it seems, in South Florida, pretty rare. You don't see a whole lot of 50% chance days thrown up on seven-day forecasts here. So you have to take all which, these... Which to me is interesting. I, I agree. Because because to me, uh, if you live here and you look around on a summer afternoon, chances are you see thunderstorms even if they don't hit you. So what your sense of what the weather forecast should have been would have been for rain. right? I can look across the landscape and I can see those thunderstorms there. So my sense is that that should have been the uh, the forecast is rain. So even if statistically only 40% of the city or the area were covered by thunderstorms or rain uh, at some point, right? I think that more people than that feel it because they can see it, they are on the edge of it, whatever. Yeah. So in my mind, uh, I always, well, First of all, when I was actually doing the local weather, I didn't use them because it aggravated me. But back then, we didn't have to do seven-day forecasts. So I didn't have to fill the the screen with all these seven days of forecasts, Mm -hmm. right? We did five-day forecasts, or I did did forecasts through the weekend, actually. So on, uh, what's today? So you did some seven days, didn't you? Then on Monday? Uh, On Monday, I would do through the week. Okay. So our goal was to do five days. So... Uh, the idea, but on Tuesday you had to do six days because on Tuesday you had to do Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Gotcha. So um, on here on Wednesday, like today, we would just do tonight, tomorrow, 
Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Tonight, tomorrow, and then and through the weekend. Yeah. Right? So, anyway, that was a way of not having to make these long-range forecasts, which uh, were kind of bogus anyway. But time is marches on. Everybody's got a phone. Uh, some people do them, so there's pressure for everybody to do them. You know, in some markets, people do 10-day forecasts very commonly now. And um, I can't imagine really doing that, you know, having to do that here. I, I don't think the no. weather would allow it here. But, but in any case, so we're kind of forced to use those percentages, like you say, um, so a lot of people think because of the seven-day forecast and needing something very small and economical. Yeah, to, and a comparison. It's a, compar- a comparison. So if I'm looking at Saturday and Sunday, and one both days could see rain. It's South mm-hmm. Florida. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen. But if I have to read a word or read a, a couple of words, afternoon showers, and I'm trying to get to Sunday, and spotty rain, what's the difference between scattered and spotty and isolated and all these words? Where if, if I'm a consumer, and this is just an opinion, I would love to know like some real hardcore data of focus groups or something like that. But my personal opinion as a consumer is if I look at Saturday and it says 30, and I look at Sunday and it says 60, I'm making my plans for Saturday. Yes, no, I think that I think people do that. I think yeah. I think we all do that. But here's the here's the 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 question is the question of modulation of these numbers, right? What's the right number for a day when there's thunderstorms? Uh, you know, everybody sees thunderstorms around, you see the sky, but it might not rain where you are. Exactly. Yeah. Right? What's the right number to convey that the day before when you're making the forecast? You know, that that's the way the day is going to be. Is mm-hmm. that a 40% day, which is 40% is about average, I think, for a summertime day in South Florida, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or is that a 60% day? Because we know there's going to be thunderstorms. And and everybody knows it, and just about everybody sees them around. Or is that a seventy percent day because we know they're there? You know, that's in my mind the the challenge. And, and you know, I've been trying to think about how to figure this out. And here's the way to figure it out, I think. And talk about research. You know, is what you would want to do is you'd want to have some kind of mechanism where people today uh, or at night would tell you what the percentage should have been for the day they already experienced. Brilliant. <laughs> you know, and then we would, we, you know, over time we would get a feel for what kind of conditions people attach what percentages to, which, by the way, will vary all over the place, but maybe you could get some kind of crowd consensus. Sure. Yeah, that's a brilliant <laughs> idea, Brian. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so anyway, maybe we can, one of these days we'll get a graduate student to, to uh, pick up something like that. And, you know, you have all kinds of uh, issues with POPs. I think it's a fascinating, fascinating subject, and it's part of the reality of modern weathercasting. All right, one other thing we should mention uh, before we go here. Fourteen years ago today, Hurricane Wilma was on final approach to South Florida. It had been dawdling around and uh, for days, pounding Cancun and Cozumel, stalled by the Yucatan. So it was another one of those stalling Storms, and that was after it suddenly blew up into this 892 millibar category five thing with this eensy tightsy little eye, one of those dreaded pinhole eye uh, situations that we hadn't seen that much of. Now we see them a lot more because we have better satellite coverage now and, and access to better satellite coverage. Well, it was a category three when it hit the Everglades in. Uh, southwest in the southwestern part of the state, south of uh, Naples, so really didn't have a big impact there in southwest Florida. And it was a Category 2 in parts of Broward and Palm Beach County, Category 1 in Dade and other areas, although people 
think of it as being much worse than a Category 1 in in Miami-Dade and uh, I think most people in Broward and Palm Beach County that actually got that eye wall thought it was worse than a low-end Category 2, which is really what they got. The only reports of Category 2 wins, actually reports of Category 2 wins, were over the uh, over Lake Okeechobee. But it was a $28 billion hurricane, so the third most expensive hurricane in the history of hurricanes. That's hard to believe. Isn't that wow. un- unbelievable? With a Category 1 over most of the metropolitan area and some areas a Category 2, which just goes to show you, really, that that any hurricane hitting a major metropolitan area with so much stuff to damage is, uh, you know, seriously damaged. Ooh, scary thought. It's really amazing. So our next podcast, as we were talking about earlier, is going to be next Friday. That's November 1st. Uh, that will wrap up uh, with, um, uh, hopefully, <laughs> we'll be done with hurricane season 2019 by then. But, of course, hurricane season continues for the month of November, and not like there's never been a hurricane in November. In fact, there's a... Uh, kind of a famous uh, Miami hurricane in November called the Yankee hurricane that came in from the Northeast uh, in November. So you just can't, you never say never until, <laughs> you know, it's not over until it's over, right? And Dr. Mike Brennan from the National Hurricane Center is going to be here with us. Mike runs the Hurricane Specialist Unit there, well, all the forecasters that turn out the advisory. So he'll talk about hurricane season 2019 and what the Hurricane Center has uh, planned for the future. So that'll be next week, Friday, November 1st. And yes, it will be November already. Amazing. So today's podcast is brought to you by the folks of the Dade County Federal Credit Union, where they care about you and your family. Stay safe and worry-free this hurricane season and prepare your home. If you need funds to help you get started, then apply for a DCFCU signature loan today and get up to $20,000 with rates as low as 6.9% at the Dade County Federal Credit Union. So that's our podcast for today. Luke, uh, Thanks for another good uh, season here. Yeah, we'll be yeah. back again next well, season. Well, and maybe, and you know, if something happens in November, we'll oh, I'll we'll, be back. We'll be on it. Yeah. So. All right, uh, everybody, have a good week, and we'll see you at the end of next week with uh, Dr. Mike Brennan from the National Hurricane Center. Take care, everybody. Thanks.